The Foghorn means it is time for the Cavaships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, Russia's war in Ukraine continues to rage with an end to the fighting nowhere in sight. But at some point, the fighting will stop. And what then? The naval and strategic significance of the Black Sea is likely to drastically change and take on an added significance in any sort of standoff between Russia, NATO, and the United States. We'll talk over some of the issues and the often tortured history of this waterway from a noted expert on the region. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. An apparent Ukrainian attack on March 24th on Russian Navy amphibious ships offloading in the captured Ukraine port of Berdyansk seems to have severely damaged at least one Alligator-class landing ship and damaged at least two Rapusha-class ships. Satellite imagery taken March 25th, a day after the attack, showed fires still burning near the Project 1171 Alligator, which appears to be sunk alongside a dock. A cargo ship at the same dock also was apparently on, still on fire. It is not clear precisely what weapon was used to attack the Russian ships, although some sources speculate it was a short-ranged ballistic missile. Russian media has had featured the ship on March 21st, offloading armored vehicles in what was called the demilitarized port of Berdyansk. The sinking of the Alligator is the most significant Russian Navy loss so far in the war, although the ships date from the 1960s, they are still capable of carrying significant loads. Japan on March 22nd commissioned the first of a new class of stealthy multi-mission frigates. The Kumano is the first of a planned 22 Mugami or FFM class ships of about 5,000 tons that represent a considerable design departure for the Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. Three more FFMs are currently under construction in two shipyards. The Japan-based destroyer USS Ralph Johnson made a transit of the Taiwan Straits on March 17th that was widely criticized on Chinese media. The U.S. Navy apparently did not publicize the transit, a change from recent practice. The Ralph Johnson made a similar transit on February 26th. The U.S. and allied partners carried out at least 14 such Taiwan Straits transits in 2021. Five U.S. Navy and three U.S. Coast Guard small ships have been decommissioned in February and March, all serving with the U.S. Fifth Fleet based at Manama, Bahrain. The 110-foot island-class Coast Guard cutters Maui, Monomoy, and Wrangell are being replaced by new and more capable 154-foot fast response cutters. The Navy's Cyclone-class patrol coastal ships, Tempest, Typhoon, Squall, Firebolt, and Whirlwind, have been decommissioned with no replacement for their role patrolling the Persian Gulf and providing force protection for visiting warships. And that's a quick look at some of the week's naval news. Well, as we said at the top, the situation in the Black Sea and the countries around the Black Sea remains incredibly unsettled. No one really knows where this is going, how it will end, when it will end, and really what will happen when it's over or when the, when the shooting stops, to put it that way, the daily shooting. But uh, whatever happens, uh, it will definitely be different than what has been going on before. So to help us uh, walk through the history of the area and uh, look at some of the issues, we're very lucky today to have Professor Ryan Gingeris. 
He is a professor uh, in the Department of National Security Affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. He's an expert on Turkish, Balkan, and Middle East history, and is the author of six books on those subjects. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Gingeris. Hey, thank you for having me on, Chris. Thank you. All right. So uh, as we said, at some point, the daily explosions will stop. Um, something will happen, but it will remain an area of contention. Uh, certainly NATO is completely focused on this area again. Um, the U.S. Navy, which is not in the Gulf, in the Gulf, in the Black Sea right now, uh, will be back in there. I have every confidence that that, that, that will happen. But um, the situation will, will be different. Can you walk us through some of the the history of this area. This has always been an incre incredibly turbulent area, um, not not a place where uh, that is known a whole lot of peaceful coexistence. Can you just talk us through some of that? Sure. I mean, I think the most instructive lessons to to draw from the Black Sea is really, you know, a, a two a twofold one. Number one, you know, this is a region that is contested largely on the basis of the presence of a of a great power and that great power is Russia. And that, you know, the Russian presence in the Black Sea um, is in grand historical terms, relatively recent. You know, it's only in the late 1700s that the Russians um, begin to exercise a considerable amount of influence within the region at large. And you have to consider that, you know, the you know, region was and still is um, inhabited by or surrounded by a variety of different peoples, um, and that you know, preceding the uh, arrival of you know of Russian influence, you know, much of the region was uh, under the influence of the Ottoman Empire. Although the Ottoman Empire exercised, you know, a much more of a, a kind of indirect or kind of loose uh, control over the territories around the 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 the. the, the the sea of uh, the the Black Sea itself, right? Not, not just the not just the the literal itself, but also the interior. But the Russians change this. You know, the Russians you know arrive, they annex the northern shores of the Black Sea, specifically area around the Crimea, uh, and then begin to develop a, a broader strategy of not only dominating the Black Sea, but using the Black Sea as a perch to influence the Eastern Mediterranean. And I think this is really sort of this, the bigger second component that uh, defines the region, not just historically, but contemporary, you know, in terms of contemporary affairs, is that, you know, the Black Sea is Russia's proverbial window on, uh, on the Mediterranean and by virtue of the Mediterranean, really global affairs, uh, since, you know, so much of international traffic passes through the Mediterranean, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, within the, the basin itself or, you know, to wider seas via the, the Suez Canal. And that fact, the fact that the Russians, you know, can use the Black Sea as a, as a means of exerting influence over the, the Eastern Mediterranean has made um, the region uh, more unstable and has, you know, created you know, a, you know, conditions that have led to conflict, um, you know, rather, um, uh, rather consistently over the last 200, 200 plus years. Uh, and that in some ways, you know, when we look about the, think about the present, we think about the future, I mean, that condition isn't necessarily going to change. We don't really know what necessarily is, 
only going to happen in Ukraine, but what will happen in Russia as a result of the war in Ukraine. Uh, but it's likely that um, not simply NATO, but the United States and perhaps even you know, a state like China will be looking at the Black Sea, looking at the implications of the Black Sea you know, in terms of how it will continue to affect competition as well as maritime traffic um, in the Mediterranean and beyond. So in recent years, the, the U.S. has had an ongoing presence in the Black Sea. Obviously, the the, the presence of specific ships is regulated by the Montreux Convention. You can stay for only a couple of weeks or so. Uh, you have to leave, you have to stay away for a certain period of time, uh, unless you're, you're uh, one of the nations that borders the Black Sea. But uh, NATO groups have, have routinely gone in there, NATO naval groups exercised with those navies and regularly exercised with Ukraine as a partner, if not a member of, of NATO. So people are, are quite familiar with uh, the Ukrainian military and they're very familiar with us. Um, that's not happening right now. Um, but uh, do you think, I mean, how do you see the, the interest of the other nations, NATO nations in going back in that area? Um, what, are, what are some of the risks with that? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, um, it, NATO, uh, is you know an organization that is in itself is first and foremost dedicated to the preservation of itself and that the alliance you know right now is you know certainly experiencing I, I, I think the term that's most often used is rejuvenation but I think its relevance more than anything has has been reignited as a result of the conflict and regardless of how the conflict plays out I think the member states that are bordering the Black Sea, you know, namely Turkey, Romania, and uh, Bulgaria, will certainly have reason to um, think more uh, specifically about security concerns in the Black Sea, and you know, will think more broadly about the political implications of further conflict in the Black Sea as a result of the Ukraine crisis. Now, I think in terms of states beyond the Black Sea in NATO. You know, I think one thing is clear is that Russia's aggression in Ukraine has given some clarity to Russia as uh, as a power and it, the potential damage it can do. And so I think for the United States, you know, for, you know, France, for Britain, uh, as well as, you know, other members of the alliance, uh, any place where Russia is present or, you know, has direct interest now assumes far greater uh, significance. And so I think most definitely uh, when, you know, the, the fighting either dies down or begin or ceases, um, you will eventually see, you know, NATO return to the Black Sea in a big way. And I think the politics of that, though, is going to be sorted out in, oh, you know, in somewhat conditional ways. And I and what I mean by that kind of briefly is that you know the states bordering the Black Sea, not only those states that are part of NATO, but those that are not, uh, have somewhat conflicting relationships with Russia, right? Uh, on the one hand, you have states like obviously Ukraine uh, and Georgia, uh, who have rather antagonistic relationship with Russia. Uh, both have been the victims of aggression by Russia in recent years. 
um, you have a state like Romania, uh, which uh, has come out pretty strongly against you know Russian aggression, has you know long-standing you know I wouldn't necessarily say historical antagonisms towards Russia, but you know Russia does not possess the sort of strong standing that it has, let's say, within by comparison in Bulgaria. You know Bulgaria and Russia have historically far stronger ties. Uh, and, you know, how the Ukraine crisis affects Bulgaria is sort of an open question going forward. And then you have a state like Turkey, and Turkey is really the big elephant in the room. You know, Turkish attitudes towards Russia, um, you know, are sort of mixed. And, you know, Turkey, frankly, has a somewhat promiscuous relationship with both NATO and Russia. And Turkey has stands both to gain and to lose a great deal as a result of the crisis. And, and I think that's going to be the biggest factor going forward in terms of how NATO interaction with the Black Sea plays out in the coming months and years ahead. So right now, so Turkey controls the only entrance in and out of the Black Sea. It's a closed area. Uh, what's known as the Turkish Straits is uh, the Dardanelles on the on the Mediterranean side and then the Sea of Mamara in the middle and the, the Bosphorus, which runs more or less through uh, uh, Istanbul and then in, in, into the Black Sea. Right. Um, those those are those are narrow straits. Uh, they're easily controlled. Long history of warfare there. At the moment, uh, Turkey has invoked the Montreux Convention, um, which I'd like you to talk a little bit about about sure. um, uh, about uh, regulating the movement of naval ships, warships, in and out of the Black Sea, and also the kinds of, of ships those can be. But um, President Erdogan has closed it to belliger the belligerent nations in this current conflict, meaning Ukraine and Russia. It's not closed to the world's warships. It's not closed to NATO. Um, as you said, Turkey is a NATO member. They do walk a fine line. But at the moment, uh, the, the Russians have a one of their four fleets is the Black Sea Fleet based on uh, uh, at uh, Sevastopol and the Crimea. Um, some of those ships are now in the Mediterranean uh, off Syria. Uh, they are, the supply of those ships is not going very well. They're not really built to stay out of area for very long. That's a problem for them. They're, they have not gone back um, in, in, into uh, their home base for over a month. Um, a lot of nations have closed their ports to them for resupply. Uh, that's that's not a good situation. And they've only, as far as I know, there's only been one Russian ship since the, this conflict began uh, pretty much a month ago, um, has gone through. And that was a merchant ship, a cargo ship that was pretty much empty and it was homeward bound. It wasn't carrying a lot of equipment. I think the Turks made an exception for that. But um, what is the Montreux Convention? What is the, I mean, everybody talks about it. We, we hear about it. What is the Montreux Convention? Sure. I mean, I think the best way to think about it is think about why it matters. I mean, we could kind of go, if you'd like, I mean, we could go through some of the kind of the details of the conditions, but the basics of it is this. You know, before the 1930s, um, the regulation of traffic through uh, the Bosphorus and Dardanelles, through the Turkish Straits, um, was not bound by any singular international treaty, and more importantly, it was up for grabs in terms of uh, external political influence. You, you know, there are, the, there are multiple wars fought between the, you know, 1800s uh, into the early 20th century, ostensibly over, you know, among other things, you know, the, the kind of outside political influence 
either Russia or Great Britain would have over the control of the Straits, or at least influence over the control of the Straits. Um, that changes with Montreux, right? Montreux creates a international um, set of internationally recognized set of conditions that regulate traffic, uh, specifically of warships. And, and the idea being is that, you know, this would be an agreement that would more than anything anchor the great powers to an understanding of the ways in which in peacetime you would have, uh, you know, uh, armed vessels going through the ship. So you do, so for example, um, there are restrictions on tonnage. As you mentioned earlier, Chris, there is sort of restrictions on uh, the degree to which uh, navies from outside the basin are allowed to enter, you know, in uh, the degree to which they can then come back. Um, the second thing that it does is that it affirms the sovereignty of the Straits uh, in, in terms of its, you know, the, its political sovereignty in the hands of Turkey. Uh, and that this is something that is an internationally recognized fact, again, most notably by the larger powers uh, on the global stage. And, and that's significant in that it establishes a key understanding that this, the, the, the political status of this region is not up for question, right? This is, this, this is a settled issue. It per, the, the actual control of the, of the Straits belongs to a sovereign country and that country's sovereignty will be respected, okay? And more than anything, that was supposed to uh, liberate the great powers from a potential uh, source of conflict, right? That, you know, this is not going to be something that, you know, a Soviet Union or a Russia or a Britain or the United States would fight over into the future. This is, you know, a settled issue. Now, in practical terms, uh, I mean, this is still something of, you know, of concern because, you know, Turkey is the arbitrary party that will determine the closure of the Straits and that conceivably, you know, would or would not make exceptions to the Straits, you know, to the to uh, to the Montreux Agreement, right? So it it places a great, still a great deal of power, you know, power as well as a lot of burden on Turkey to be that arbiter, right? So therefore, we look at not just sort of current affairs, we look at future affairs, how Turkey, you know, deals with this, you know, with this responsibility, but also this, you know, this power that it has is something you have to watch. So Ryan, in, um, you know, in every crisis, there is opportunity. Um, what opportunity exists for Turkey specifically, right? I mean, we've talked a lot about Russia and Ukraine. And, and I mean, th this is, I mean, as you sort of look at Turkey and the, I think of, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my frenemy or my friend. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, Turkey's yeah. sort of been in this weird position, but do, does, does Turkey have the opportunity to kind of come away from this if they handle their control of the straits appropriately from an international standpoint, do they have a, do they come away from this with a bit of a clean slate, if you will, you know, in terms of NATO, or does this put them in a potentially, um, you know, bad position with Russia? I'm, I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on Turkey specifically. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. And I, I don't know if there's necessarily are right answers to this question at present. I mean, Turkey has the benefit of being able to point to an internationally agreed upon text in explaining or 
justifying its positions on the straits, right? And you know, Turkey, however, has the flexibility of of how it wishes to interpret it. And so where this came up initially was whether or not a state of war existed in the Black Sea. And initially, you know, the Turkish Foreign Ministry said, no, we don't recognize that this is a state of war, right? Which is, you know, was a rather, you know, strict reading of the text, I suppose, but, you know, not necessarily true in terms of the spirit of, of the text. Um, they have switched since switched that position and it's on that basis that they have invoked this you know restriction on uh you know russian traffic through this through the straits um what do they stand to gain i mean it i guess it's all very conditional based on the outcome but also how both russia and uh united states europe you know, wishes to deal with Turkey going forward. And I'll, I'll give sort of two very brief and very basic scenarios, right? You know, number one, you know, Turkey has tried to have it both ways in terms of its relationship with both Ukraine and with Russia, as well as sort of maintaining, you know, this degree of fidelity to the NATO alliance. Although, you know, in, in other terms, in terms of it, sort of the handling of the crisis, uh, it's clear that you know there are limits to which you know Turkey is at least overtly wanting to be a part of the you know uh, of the campaign against you know Russia and Ukraine. Um, well, uh, on the one hand, you could see a Turkey walking out of this in which you know Turkey reaps some sort of benefit as a result of goodwill on the part of Russia. NATO, the United States, Europe, what have you, right? In which, let's say, maybe, you know, Russia, you know, Russian-Turkish cooperation on international uh, issues, let's say Libya or Syria continue to go apace, it, you know, or they, you know, that relationships continues to generate, you know, both opportunities and advantages for Turkey. Uh, perhaps, you know, uh, down the line, Turkey's military relationship you know, it's sort of mill-to-mill -mill relationship with, you know, with Russia continues to bear some kind of fruit in terms of um, co-cooperation or further arms sales. On the flip side, you know, maybe, you know, you get some kind of, you know, at least Turkey's hoping that, you know, you get some lifting of the sanctions that have been placed upon Turkey by the United States and other, you know, partners in Europe. Maybe you get sales of F-16s. Uh, to Turkey, which is a really major sticking point now between the United States and, and Turkey. So these are the kind of the upsides, right? These are the potential upsides that Turkey, you know, may gain from this. The downsides are that, you know, people look on Turkey, you know, as very, as either somewhat duplicitous or having never fully committed or perhaps more, you know, I think what's generally less talked about is the fact that you know, Erdogan and, and Putin, at least, especially in the in Europe and the United States, are often thought of as being cut from the same cloth, right? They're both authoritarians, they're both oppressors of free speech and minorities and, you know, rights at home, they have behaved aggressively abroad, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you could see a scenario where, you know, rather than gaining anything, you get more kind of pressure externally by uh, Europe and the United States, you know, as a result of this crisis and that, you know, no one really wants to see any kind of Ukraine-like scenario play out, let's say, in the Aegean or the Mediterranean, in which Turkey is play, plays the role of the aggressor. 
uh, or you know, on the part of Russia that you know that Russia you know may not necessarily have a great deal of gratitude towards Turkey going forward. You know, after all, Turkey has sold you know um, its TB2s, its drones to Ukraine. Those 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 drones have had a rather significant effect on Russian forces. At least this is you know how what we're led to believe. And so you know the stakes are high either way. Uh, and I think at this point it's really hard to say what scenario looks likely, I guess that we're going to probably get a mix of the two scenarios. You know, there's lots of concern about, um, you know, this conflict spilling over into, you know, other Poland or, or elsewhere. Right. I guess in talking and in listening to your discussion, uh, and, and it's hard for me to tell if it's because I'm, I'm sort of maritime focused and that's why I think this, or if it's listening to people like you, my biggest concern is that the spillover or the potential for this thing turning into World War III right. is over the Black Sea. Um, you, you, you know, and maybe not in the context of simply Ukraine, but you know, Chris mentioned at the beginning, it, you know, when NATO decides to go back into the Black Sea, how does Turkey handle its responsibility? When does Russia want to push back? And as you hit on, I mean, there's just a lot of different things here that center around the dynamics in, in the Black Sea. And that, that's why your discussion is so helpful. You know, let's let's think of two different scenarios where you have, you know, chances for escalation and chances for de-escalation. Yeah, in, in the present and in the future. So, uh, scenario one is something that we saw a glimpse of you know, about two or three weeks ago when a, big, a Romanian MiG-21 uh, uh, came down somewhere within the Black Sea. Now, that's, that was very serious. I mean, for a brief couple of hours, this looked really serious, like, you know, that you know, the Romanians may have lost you know, an aircraft due to some sort of Russian you know, uh, response or Russian aggression, right? Uh, that in and of itself, you know, triggers Article 5. You have this sort of issue with respect to a NATO member who's now operating right up against the gradient of the conflict with Russia within the Black Sea Basin. That's a real problem. That's something we should really think about going forward. Uh, the, the second one, you know, and, and this is not necessarily hopeful or this is, I, this is just sort of a statement of the facts. You know, the regulation of, you know, kind of, let's just say sort of um, maritime activity, at least in terms of respective navies, has long been had, you know, been sort of defined by a certain kind of understanding within the Black Sea, a law, at least among the states within the Black Sea. You know, there is a consortium of, uh, of states that, would, that also includes Ukraine, but also NATO members like Romania and Bulgaria, uh, in terms of joint operations, you know, deconflictions with Russia, uh, there is a kind of established security apparatus or sort of established security architecture there that's longstanding. There's a lot of, you know, sort of traffic as well as communication back and forth across the, you know, this, this line of, uh, of, uh, of tension or this sort of line of contact. Um, and this is one that has long been largely dictated by Turkey, and Turkey has long maintained a rather friendly relationship with Russia with, regarding, you know, uh, maritime activity of its, you know, uh, within the within the Black Sea. Uh, the Turkish Navy does make regular port calls to Russian ports uh, in the north, um, and you know, from the Turkish standpoint, there's 
there's never been a real stated sense of insecurity that Russia posed a territorial threat against it there. Now, that wasn't always the case. I mean, obviously, one could go back to, you know, say the days of the early Cold War when that was the case. That has not, not been the case for quite a long period of time. And so you do have these, you know, mechanisms, you do have a certain set of precedents in which you may not get, you know, or at least you have the possibility of some kind of interaction or uh, de-escalatory mechanisms that would allow for at least the diffusing of some kind of tension going forward. All right. Well, we could go on and on because the history of this region does seem to go on and on and on, but time is, uh, is, is uh, not on our side. Our guest today has been Professor Ryan Gingeris from the Naval Postgraduate School. He is a historian of the late Ottoman Empire. He is His next book is The Last Days of the Ottoman Empire, 1918 to 1922, to be published published this October by Penguin Books. Thank you again, sir. It's, it's been a great discussion. Thank you very much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now. All right. You know what that means. In this week's Squawk, Mr. Cavus talks about the big impact from small ships. As noted earlier in this podcast, over the past few weeks, several small but useful vessels have been decommissioned by the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard, all serving with the Fifth Fleet based at Bahrain in the Persian Gulf. Those ships were all rode hard and are being put up wet, if you will, and all are now available to continue their careers under friendly foreign flags. But it's interesting to note that none of these ships wound up doing what they were originally intended to do. The Cyclone-class patrol ships started out as, as a requirement from the Navy's special warfare community, who wanted something large enough to support covert insertion teams. But after the first ship was delivered in 1993, special warfare thinking had changed, and the community rejected the ships as being too large for the mission. Big Navy, focused on blue water power projection and expensive Aegis warships, had no particular need for them either. And even as they continued to be built, the fleet debated whether or not the ships had any real use. By the beginning of the 2000s, all 13 ships in service were to be decommissioned and disposed of. And then came 9-11 and a new clamor from dozens of seaport cities for a visible Navy presence. The little cyclones fit the bill nicely. Some were even temporarily transferred to the Coast Guard for the patrol role. After the invasion of Iraq, the ships were seen as very useful to patrol the Persian Gulf, and eventually 10 PCs were based in Bahrain where they performed any number of useful duties. Now, ironically, rather than being thrown away when nearly new, most of them are being retired, having performed sterling service. The Coast Guard's 110-foot island-class patrol cutters didn't even start out as Coast Guard ships. They were ordered in the early 1980s by the U.S. Customs Service to combat a sharp rise in illegal immigration attempts from Cuba. The Coast Guard took over the program, but even then, the ships were never intended to last more than 12 to 15 years in service before being thrown away. The cutter Maui, a 110-footer I was privileged to get underway with a few years ago in the Gulf, was commissioned in 1986. By the original metric, she should have been disposed of and as worn out no later than 2001. Yet she served well more than 35 years, mostly in roles and missions far removed from their original purpose. The point is this. Situations change, requirements change, technology change, but these small ships that either nobody wanted or were supposed to be disposed of, wound up being highly adaptable to new missions that weren't originally on the table. Just keep that in mind the next time an official wants to dispose of legacy programs that don't fit what the current establishment wants to buy. 
Adaptability is as key to success as figuring out what you want to buy in the first place. Well said, Chris. Something tells me that last paragraph uh, we'll hear again. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavish. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Bye-bye.